This is Steve Smith at the California Western School of Law, and I call the Law Review to order. Today, the Supreme Court. We take a look back at last term, and there's been enough time to digest what the term was about and to come to some, perhaps some more considered conclusions about the importance of those decisions. And at the end of this podcast, we will talk about an important announcement of a resignation uh, from the court. So, to our lawyers today are Glenn Smith from California Western, an expert on constitutional law, and Stan Panikowski, an attorney with DLA Piper in San Diego and a former law clerk for Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. So, so what, in your opinion, is the most important case of the term? I think you've got to say the, uh, the Windsor case, the case that invalidated Section 3 of the Defensive Marriage Act, just because of its impact on hundreds of thousands of uh, same-sex couples in the increasing number of very populous states who are allowing same-sex marriage. And if you talk about a tangible result in terms of clearing away um, 1,100 obstacles in federal law, that that has to you know show up as really important. Well, let's say a word about what the, the ruling was in that case. Right. They held that uh, the federal government's attempt to define, or Congress's attempt to define marriage as between a man and a woman, so that even if a state recognized a same-sex marriage, federal benefits, taxation, immigration, military benefits, et cetera, would not recognize that, that that was unconstitutional because it reflected nothing more than irrational prejudice and violation of the Equal Protection Clause. Well, we have our copy of the Constitution here, what what provision in the Constitution? Well, it would it would be uh, the Fifth Amendment, which interestingly enough doesn't even use the words equal protection. At least the what the, the amendment that applies to states does. But it's always been understood that so it, so the sta- the Fourteenth Amendment we hear about all the time. And equal protection correct. applies to the states, state and local, but not the government. Federal government. Right, and then it, the federal government, the Bill of Rights, or is what applies to the federal government. The Fifth Amendment refers to. Uh, the, the federal government not being able to deprive people of liberty without due process of law, that's always been understood to include equality. But this is a rather implicit or indirect um, you know, interpretation, and certainly a controversial one. So did it, did, does it have importance? You mentioned its practical importance to a lot of people. Does it have legal importance in terms of serving as a precedent? It, it it's a precedent. It's a precedent that the federal government can't uh, deprive people of same-sex marriage. It doesn't technically say anything about the ability of states to continue to do that. So this but was this a states' rights case? Well, it it was partly a federalism case, but it but as it also has a very strong very strong language in it, which talks about um, same-sex marriage partners having the legal dignity to uh, and that their that their marriages should be treated equally which uh, the theory and the spirit of that certainly would suggest that same-sex marriage discrimination laws are dubious constitutionally so we have a, a there's a difference between what the case formally says for the ability of states to continue to discriminate which is nothing it doesn't say anything about that it leaves that open uh, plus, as compared to the spirit, which I think that language will be is already being used in lower court litigation to try to argue that state discrimination is unconstitutional. In addition to the practical and legal importance of the decision that Glenn discusses, I think the decision also has cultural importance, but maybe not as much as people realize and probably not as much as the history books are going to say. I think that it's not likely 
to be a revolutionary event in terms of changing a lot of people's attitudes on same-sex marriage, but I do think that it will make it more difficult for opponents of same-sex marriage to sustain that opposition given that the Supreme Court has weighed in on it in this way. However, it's not so much of a vanguard decision because when you look at the public opinion polls on same-sex marriage and look at the trajectory over the last couple of decades, um, before this decision, I think there have been a, a recent surge in support for same-sex marriage. And most polls seem to show that you know, a, a clear plurality and a near majority of the American people supported same-sex marriage. And what the Supreme Court is essentially doing here is ratifying the emerging, but not yet their consensus among the American people, and then pushing that along. And I think that that's a pattern that we see in a lot of what are viewed as landmark decisions on social issues from the Supreme Court. Brown versus Board of Education, Griswold, Roe v. Wade. A lot of times the history books look back and say, aha, the Supreme right. Court was you know, ahead of its time. It did this brave counter-majoritarian, counter-cultural thing. Whereas when you compare the timing of the decision with the opinion polls, all they really did was ratify an emerging but not yet solid consensus. Sort of reflecting and, the change, not causing it. Is that Yes, reflecting it and, and nudging it along oh, a little see, bit. I mean, I there, was, yeah. there was about a decade-long gap between Brown v. Board of Education and the Civil Rights Act of 1964. I think Brown v. Board probably helped nudge the country along toward that, yet it took another decade to get there. And then if you look at where the country was in 1954, opinion had already started to shift toward the, the progressive view. So in terms of the, the DOMA case, the Defense of Marriage Act, which part of it was declared unconstitutional, and that part that said that if a state, even if a state defines marriage as between, to include same-sex couples, uh, that the federal government wouldn't, it struck that part down. Correct. It left the rest of that law in place, but you're suggesting if, uh, to pick a state, Iowa, that hasn't decided, the, the, the opinion, the decision itself does not require Iowa to recognize same-sex. That, that's correct. And in fact, the, the other companion case where the court had the opportunity to specifically opine about whether the 14th Amendment equal protection allowed a state to discriminate or prevented a state from discriminate was the, the Proposition 8 case from California. And the court very clearly didn't go there. Again, as, as you just said, it uh, we don't. We didn't have a situation like in Brown, where a majority of states believed against had already gone beyond segregation, and a few outliers were still segregating. We don't have that situation, and the court withheld its its judgment. And I think that the court probably would much prefer that this issue be resolved legislatively. It's pretty clear the direction in which it's going. I think it's just a matter of how long it takes to get there. And here they, they probably did just enough to recognize what was going on and help advance that without making, as Glenn explained, the more sweeping holdings that they could have in the two cases. And I think Justice Scalia predicted they yeah. would be doing that. Well, that's right. And, and he's, I'm sure he's, I, mean, I imagine he's right. But when and, when and how is, is a real question. Yeah. But again, back to your, your question was what, what's important about it. And I think right. that this conversation showing one of the really important things about this kind of a case is it shows what people don't often perceive, which is that there is a limited power to the Supreme Court and the judiciary. We always think of them as the Supreme Court and their opinions are on the front page when the term ends and all this. But 
the reality is, as unelected uh, institutions that aren't supposed to represent majorities, they feel the need to restrain their power, and other institutions help them restrain their power. So the, the court is supreme, but it is also needs to be careful, and we see it being careful. Well, Stan, what did you think was the most important case this term? I, I likewise think that Windsor was the most important case. And to, to me, the fact that there isn't even a close second actually underscores the the limited importance of the Supreme Court relative to what a lot of us perceive. That when, when you look back on the term, it it could have been a term full of blockbuster cases if the outcomes had been different. But there are a lot of cases where the, the court chose to take a, a much more limited approach. And there are other cases where you know, the court came out one way and it makes the case not a big deal, but if the court had come out the other way, it, it would have been a big deal. And, and so what we see here is that you, you have a Supreme Court that gets 8,000 petitions from, from the get-go. It sounds like a lot, but it's really only a very, very small percentage of federal litigation out there. A lot of them are, are petitions that are fairly easily dismissed out of hand as not cert worthy. And, and then they end up entertaining about 75 cases on the merits. Again, a, a tiny fraction of the petitions and even tinier fraction of federal litigation. Then only a few of those cases have potential blockbuster status. And then you get to the case Windsor, which is the undisputed champion as most significant case of the term. And, and it is significant in the ways we discussed, but again, not nearly so much as it could have been. And it, it might make you think that you know, the Supreme Court is overrated but it also may simply mean that the Supreme Court, or at least a majority of the court, is achieving exactly what they want to achieve, which is reducing the impact of federal judicial power on the way the country operates and shifting more of the, the engine to the executive branch and the legislative branch. You're, you're saying in part an interesting element of this term was the dogs that didn't bark. <laughs> That's an unfortunate because I know there are some dog cases, but th there are a lot of cases that could have been blockbusters that, that weren't because of either right. narrow holding or going off on more of a procedural way of deciding the case. Exactly. And then also in, in the other category of cases that are pretty routine, but would have been a huge deal if they had come out the other way. Let's take a look at the one of the very first cases of the term. In fact, I think it might have been the, the first one decided, United States v. Borms. Okay, something that you think only you know a civil procedure geek. So um, what would was be that case? About? So that, that was about whether the the Little Tucker Act, um, which in, involves waivers of federal sovereign immunity in some instances where um, somebody can sue the federal government, applied to the Fair Credit Reporting Act. Um, and, and the Federal Circuit um, said that, that it did, and it basically would allow citizens with claims against the federal government under the Fair Credit Reporting Act to get jurisdiction in federal court under the Little Tucker Act. The Supreme Court unanimously reversed and said, you know, no, the Little Tucker Act is just a gap-filling statute. It doesn't give blanket federal jurisdiction over claims against the government, separate and apart from whether the statute, the underlying substantive statute authorizes such a claim. Again, no big deal. But if the court had come out the other way, it would have been a huge deal because it would have it would have then interpreted 
the Little Tucker Act as as being essentially a a default rule of waiver of federal sovereign immunity that would have opened the floodgates to all kinds of cases that may not have been permissible under the specific authorizing statute. So I, I, again, I mean that's that's a a deep tangent, but I think that's an example of how there are so many cases where the Supreme Court is just clarifying something and setting the record straight, but if they had gone the other way, it would actually be a sea change. Well, let me ask a, a slightly different question, which is what, what did you think was the most interesting case, either fun or strange or just interesting? I thought that the two dog cases um, were very interesting. And I, think, and I think the larger trend is 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 very interesting. You know, first of all, like as Madison Avenue knows, like dogs are interesting, right? People love dogs; they pay attention to them. And and it used to be that these dog cases would you know pop up every decade or so, and they were interesting little sideshows. So this and, was and, not an appeal from a dog show, right? No, no, it was. It, was not, it has nothing to do with best in show. Um, <laughs> And um, now it seems like we have this you know, little cottage area of, of jurisprudence um, about dogs. And I'm sure it will spawn all kinds of law school classes like Fido and the law or you know, canines well, cases in, in cannabis. There are already um, a, a substantial number of law schools with animal law courses. Yes, so exactly. This will, in this, so yeah, animals and, I guess and so the will be seminar, advanced, this seminar will be following. Seminar. Yeah, right. 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 <laughs> um, and, and so in, in short, in, in, in one of the cases... Um, they, they both came out of Florida. Um, and in one of the cases, the court said, if a dog is sniffing for drugs at the precipice of a residence, that constitutes a search within the meaning of the Fourth Amendment, therefore triggering the probable cause and warrant requirements. And, and the reason why that's interesting is that it, it seems to reflect this very hodgepodge nature of Fourth Amendment law, which makes sense when you understand American history and culture, but probably wouldn't make sense from an alien walking off a spaceship and asking questions. So let's suppose that alien comes from a planet where you know everybody rents, um, or where where people just live in in big communes, um, and and they come down and, and they want to know. So if, if a dog sniffs for drugs, is is it a search? And, and what are we saying? And they're well, talking it, about it, being outside the house. So they're around the house, the curtain, it, it, I think they exactly. call it the curtilage, right. which not, is just sort of around the house. Right. So suppose this alien says, um, you know, is, is a dog sniff a search? And we say, well, well, it depends. Depends on what? Depends on what they're sniffing. Well, how about if they're sniffing luggage at an airport? Oh, not a search. How about if they're sniffing a, a car that was stopped at a drug interdiction checkpoint? Nope, not a search. What if they're sniffing, sniffing around you know, the, the doorway of a house? Oh, that's a search. And, and it, it doesn't rationally seem to compute, but then when you understand the American history and culture about the sanctity of the home um, and, and all of the, the privacy and, and rights associated with that, it makes perfect sense to us, even, even though it might be hard to you know, rationalize it from a broader perspective. I mean, a, a, whether something is a search or not, seemingly from a logical perspective, shouldn't depend on where the sniff is occurring, but where makes all the difference in the new canine jurisprudence. And in the sense of your home is your castle. I mean, that's what this was about. It is what you were saying is it's right. protected. Your home is protected in a special way that would not necessarily be, well, it wouldn't be true in an airport for sure. Probably wouldn't be true at work, I assume. Right, right, exactly. So, but but Fido did bite back in, in the other case where <laughs> they, they vindicated um, the, the use of, of drug sniffing dogs and in essentially saying that, um, 
that if the drug if the drug sniffing dog had gone through you know, certain training and was certified, that gave rise to a presumption of reliability, and that presumption could be rebutted. But they um, they rejected the much more dog unfriendly test of the Florida Supreme Court. So in the second case you're talking about, the the question is whether the the dog provides sufficiently reliable information to be the basis for a reasonable search. Exactly. And um, and the answer was if they've been trained or have papers or whatever. It, Probably, yes, presumptively so, and you yeah. could go ahead and rebut that presumption with case-specific evidence. The Florida Supreme Court had set up a more rigid checklist that made it more difficult to get dog sniffs admitted, and it'll be interesting to see from a technological perspective whether in you know, ten or twenty years we view these cases as relics because robots or drones have taken over the yeah, drug sniffing world. That's a or great if, question. If the canine sense of smell, um, which we all know is incredible, um, is is so uniquely capable of this function that it ends up continuing to be a big issue in Fourth Amendment jurisprudence, even though drones and robots are taking over other areas of search and surveillance. But, but if they're equally accurate or more accurate, the, the robot, is more, would, it, would these cases come out the same way or is it something special about dogs? I think that if we just replace the robots with dogs, um, it probably wouldn't be any different, but it would be less interesting and yeah. less snuggly, I guess. Glenn, did you have a favorite interesting Yes, I, I actually ha I have a couple. They're they're not dog cases, but uh, they're they were interesting. I think also, be um, I would I would count in the interesting category um, a case related to the this area, which is Maryland versus King, uh, a the case about the DNA swab. So it's a a higher tech version than dogs of of a privacy issue and a Fourth Amendment issue. And I, I found it interesting for two reasons. One was partly the the alignment of the justices. I am always someone who likes to note when judges, justices don't act consistent with what people would expect in terms of the liberal and conservative labels. And here you had um, uh, Justice Breyer, who most people call liberal, joining um, four conservatives to uphold the ability um, of, of people once they're arrested but not yet convicted to have their DNA swabbed out and, and, and used to, to link them to past crimes. But in the dissent you had, and not just the dissent, but the author of a very scathing dissent was Justice Scalia, who again, most people think of as a quote conservative, but, but he, he has this and other areas where he's supported privacy rights. So I thought it was interesting because of the alignment. Also thought it was interesting because if you go back a year ago when we were talking about the court, we were talking about the GPS case, this case where the court yeah. unanimously, although on different theories, unanimously upheld uh, rights of a criminal defendant not to be uh, comprehensively and extensively searched and have it had his movements tracked by GPS. Um, that seemed to be the unanimous uh, um, alignment there seemed to be suggesting the court was moving in a more privacy protective area and by a vote of five to four in upholding the right of the state to um, I I invade privacy. In this sense, the court's kind of gone back on that a little bit or at least stunted that development. That, that case, I'll have to, to, to say, if I had the most disturbing case of the yeah. term, for me, that would that, that case was it, in part because it's one thing to be taking it, but when you, uh, when you think about the technology, this it was a little bit in the oral argument, but yeah. maybe not as much as in the opinion. When you think the, the, the degree to which we're on the brink of being able to tell a massive number of things about someone from DNA samples, uh, 
that seems to me to be a huge invasion. I mean, you can tell a lot already, but it's nothing compared right. to what 10 years from now will be available. Well, that's, and that's yet another way in which this case was interesting because as the Maryland law was written and as the current technology is, those concerns didn't come to the forefront. But they certainly were on the near horizon. So it was one of those questions the court periodically faces, which is do they deal with the situation as it is now, the privacy concerns or other concerns, or do they project ahead and deal with what could be. And but having case, decided it this way that it's okay to search, can, could they limit then after that saying, well, it's okay to search, but you can't do all the individualization characteristics that you could do in, say, five or 10 years? Would that be possible? I think that's implicit in this decision, that, that because they, they rejected the argument of the on behalf of the criminal defendant and the privacy rights advocates that this could lead to invasion of people's medical and sensitive personal information and all that. That's implicit. They, they accept, they rejected that, said, no, the current technology doesn't do that, and that would be, and the Maryland law makes it a crime to abuse the information. So if it came out that that, that was available and uh, those kind of invasions could be routinely used, and I think you could even use this opinion to cut back on that. I, th I think the, the bigger concern is the fact that the, that the court has crossed a line here. Generally, we have treated people that have been arrested but not convicted as though they still have the presumption of innocence and um, they're sort of like the general population. And yet here the court, I mean, there have been some minor intrusions on if you're arrested, they can restrict your liberty necessary to make sure there's prison security and all that. But this is, this is a much bigger deal, a much bigger expansion of treating people merely who've been arrested as though they're more like convicted defendants who can have their liberty significantly restricted. And that's, I think, the most disturbing part of this opinion. And I think Justice Scalia's dissent is interesting because so many dissents use this alarmist, slippery slope um, heuristic uh, of, about all the awful things that flow as a logical consequence of the court's opinion. And I think that this is an instance where Justice Scalia is probably not just being alarmist. I think he's <laughs> right from a logical perspective that you know we could get Tom Cruise and Minority Report um, from this opinion. But I think we know that the court will come up with a limitation principled or otherwise. How do we know that? Because they always do in Fourth <laughs> Amendment cases. Yeah. And I, I think it may have been Dean Chemerinsky who said, you know, here's how you can predict how a Fourth Amendment case is going to come out. If it's something that the justices can imagine happening to them, it's going to be struck down. If it's something that they can't imagine happening to them, then it's going to be upheld. And, and that's probably as good a predictive principle for Fourth Amendment cases as I've heard. Today on Law Review, we are speaking with Glenn Smith and Stan Panikowski, both experts on constitutional law. Well, did you uh, experts see a sleeper case, something that kind of escaped notice, but it's going to be important probably in the future? There is one case that's in the wheelhouse of, of my practice, intellectual property, um, that I, I thought you know, it got a little bit of play on... You know, NBCnews.com, but not a whole lot of attention. But it is potentially significant, and that's a copyright case called Kurt Sang v. John Wiley and Sons. And and the question was simply, if, say, a textbook is sold outside the United States lawfully with the copyright owner's consent, and then imported by the purchaser into the U.S and resold in the US, is that a violation of the copyright owner's rights or were the copyright owner's rights exhausted when it authorized the sale of that textbook overseas? And 
in, in the past, in both patent law and copyright law, it, it had been understood and it was the holding of many cases that an international sale of an article did not exhaust your U.S. intellectual property rights because U.S. intellectual property rights are confined to U.S. territory and have no extraterritorial application. That's significant from an economic perspective because, as we know, a lot of goods are sold much more cheaply overseas than they would be in the US. And so IP owners have been able to extract a lot of value from their US intellectual property rights by being able to prohibit people from reselling in, in the US and, and saying that if you, know, if you wanna sell something in the US, you have to pay us a royalty the first time it's sold in the US regardless of how many times it's, it's sold abroad. And so it, it's gonna hurt copyright owners. Um, it's, you know, so, some people would say it's gonna help consumers because prices will be cheaper, but then will it ultimately hurt consumers in the long run because it will impair innovation. And then probably the biggest question flowing from it is, will the Supreme Court extend this holding in a later case to patent law? Because if so, it'll have an even bigger impact there, especially in the pharmaceutical industry where so many drugs are sold far more cheaply overseas than in the United States. Is there, well, there, the pharmaceutical is gonna be different because of the FDA regulation of importation. So I mean, there's, there's no real equivalent in, in copyright, maybe. I mean, that's one potential difference. But, but is there a first sale concept in patent, in patent law? Yes, there is, oh. um, but there's a very clear rule, at, at least clear for now, from from the Federal Circuit that in order in order for the first sale of a patented article to exhaust the patent owner's rights, that first sale needs to occur in the United States. Oh, okay, now, so that part's clearer than yes, and and Kurt Sang certainly does not foreordain the result. Um, you know, in in the I think inevitable patent exhaustion case that gets before the Supreme Court and puts this extraterritoriality issue into play because so much of it was based on an analysis of the particular language of that statute. But there's a real debate about this in patent law. And if the Supreme Court you know, eventually takes that patent case and, and decides it in alignment with what seems to be their broad skepticism toward intellectual property but and their view that, that um, perhaps the Federal Circuit and the PTO are overly protective of IP rights and are therefore hampering innovation, well, then that would that would give patent owners something to worry about. I, this is an unusual chance to ask an expert. In the oral argument in that case, so the, the, the following question was asked. So I buy a Toyota, uh, and it's got all these copyrights that are essentially in Japan. Uh, the copyrights are in Japan. And now I want to resell my car. It's got tons of copyrighted stuff. I mean, right. Computer programs, manuals, stickers, tons of copyright. How can you? How could we have normal commerce today if there weren't a first sale doctrine in copyright? Right. And I think that that is much of what drove the court's decision. Um, those practical considerations and recognizing that now the economy is global. And I think the court yeah. has some sense that the notion of extraterritorial IP laws are maybe a little bit antiquated. You know, however, the, the more than reasonable counter argument is that's a question for Congress yeah, and right. not a question that's for the Supreme well, that's Court. A, and that's a very good point. I mean, the, there's a lot of these questions. The court has to say, is this really our, and this is one, they have to decide the case, but in, his, in effect, limiting or 
interpreting the law one way or another, it, it's an invitation to Congress. Sometimes it's explicit, an invitation to Congress right. to uh, change the law. Well, Glenn, did you have a sleeper case? Um, I, most of the cases that uh, I followed got a fair amount of publicity. I would say that uh, two, th two cases kind of come to mind. One is the uh, University of Texas affirmative action case got a lot of press. Uh, the, the possibility that the court would overturn recently minted precedents from just nine years ago got everybody up, up in arms. There were dozens of, of amicus briefs from uh, educational and civil rights organizations. But it kind of all just fizzled at the end because the court simply sent it back to the Fifth Circuit and said, do this again under a, a tighter standard and, and didn't take on any of the bigger um, potential assaults on the affirmative action theory. So there, I, I was a, a little bit amused that nobody, kind of the reporters didn't quite know how to report the fact that the court had yeah. done nothing important in this case. But Supreme Court does nothing <laughs> is the headline. But certainly it was, you know, a big sigh of relief for uh, academic institutions and uh, civil rights advocates and others who were worried that the, the court would either do the unthinkable, which is to overturn those precedents, or at least significantly put a line in the sand and say, you know, you, you can use race in a nuanced way for a whole to get a, to get a diverse class, but don't go more micro than that. Don't start talking about individual programs and majors and all that. So I thought I thought that was was what I would call um, a, a sleeper in terms of the ultimate conclusion. Well, in part, it's an open chapter because right. we don't know quite what the lower courts are going to do with that. I mean, it depends on how you <laughs> apply. Well, if they if they're good signal readers, yeah. they'll be they'll get that they are supposed to apply something very strict, and they're supposed to invalidate this, and all will be well. But uh, we'll see. And the affirmative action non-decision, I also think is interesting because it's being used by many commentators as the latest example in this you know, behind-the-scenes conspiracy theory that Chief Justice Roberts is playing this yes. quote long game in constitutional law where he's moving very incrementally doesn't want to trigger a backlash and trying to get the quote-unquote liberal justices to buy into um, some you know, statements favorable to his views but they're modest they're they're embedded they're you know, written in invisible ink and and <laughs> encrypted um, and then later on um, he's gonna say you know aha gotcha. um, you agree to something you know much broader and, and, and make a much broader holding and it's 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 an interesting theory I'm, I'm skeptical of it for, for two reasons one because I'm, I'm just not sure that's the way any Supreme Court justice or at least most of them um, really think and, and two the, the biggest I can sum up in two words the biggest reason to doubt the long game theory Hillary Clinton what is Chief Justice Roberts long game if what now seems inevitable happens in 2016. Um, Justice Scalia, Justice Kennedy, and Justice Ginsburg, I believe, are the, the three justices most likely to retire. Um, if two of those replacements are made, um, Justice Kennedy and Justice Scalia, by a future President Clinton, that will have a significant impact on the court. I think that we, we know what types of justices a President Hillary Clinton likely would, would appoint, the same kind that her um, husband, the, you know, the potential future first man, um, appointed Justice Ginsburg and, and Justice Breyer. Um, and if if that's the case, and you know, the the it's early, but the polls as well as the broader demographic and electoral trends in the country point toward that. There are really only a few years left for this quote unquote long game to play out. So if that's what Chief Justice Roberts is up to, he 
better turn it into a you know short to medium game very very quickly if he wants to prevail. Well, that yes, I'll have to admit, knowing for sure who's going to be on the court in the long term would be a little tricky. Right. That's exactly right. Well, we said at the beginning of the podcast <laughs> that we were going to talk about an important resignation from the court, and uh, I'm guessing it's a resignation many people will will not have heard of and may not even know the incumbent office. The, the clerk of the Supreme Court has been General William Souter for many years, and he's been hugely important within the internal operation of the court and the, the court's interaction with the, the, the bar. And he announced that he will be retiring August 31st uh, to be replaced by uh, Scott Harris. But uh, General Souter, he's known as General, uh, in part to differentiate him from former Justice Souter, but also because he was uh, Judge Advocate General, um, will be missed. He has been a wonderful part of the court. He, on days of oral argument, he is everywhere. He's talking to the attorneys who are going to argue the case. He's talking to people who are making motions for admissions on the case. He's a great sense of humor. The, the office is organized immaculately. He's been very interested in legal education as well as the Supreme Court bar, and uh, I think it is a, a great loss. Was, was he uh, working as the, the clerk? When you were clerking, and I should say we've got two kind of clerks that we're talking about here. The clerk of the Supreme Court is is General Souter, but justices have clerks, and as we mentioned earlier, you clerked for uh, Justice O'Connor. So was he at the court when you were there? Yes, General Souter ran the operation when I was there, and he had an incredible impact, not just on how well the Supreme Court was run, but also on the culture of the Supreme Court. They, they called it, you know, they... 400 or so people who work in the building a Supreme Court family. Um, and he's a, a big part of making it feel like a family, as well as the Supreme Court extended family of all the people who argue there, visit there, come there to get admitted. And I think um, you know, a lot of times you know, people will think of somebody from the military coming into running some to run something and think that they'll run it with a brutal efficiency or a ruthless efficiency. Well, General Souter ran the operations with an incredibly kind and caring efficiency. Let's call it compassionate um, efficiency. Yeah. He, he, was, he was somebody who commanded respect and you certainly wanted to, to do things the way he said they needed to be done, um, but was also very humorous, very, very caring, very interested in um, you know, how people were doing personally, the kind of person who, when he said, you know, how are you, really meant it and really wanted a response and just a, a true gem of a human being um, and somebody that the, the court and the broader legal community will, will definitely miss. I hope that he um, does a lot of fun and relaxing stuff in his well-earned retirement. I hope he finishes. He was writing a book uh, about the clerks of the Supreme Court, and I hope he finishes that. It would be fascinating. The stories he told uh, has told about that are, are great. One final incident involving him, we were making having a group of alums being admitted to the court one day early in Chief Justice Roberts' term, and a light over over Mr. Souter, General Souter blew out, and and molten glass started falling down from the ceiling. And Chief Justice Roberts very calmly said. Don't worry about that. That's just a little trick they play on new chief justices. And, uh, and afterwards, I saw General Souter and said, wow, I, I saw you dive off to the side with that molten glass coming down. He said, I thought we had incoming. <laughs> so we will miss him a lot. Well, thank you very much uh, for being with us on Law Review today, Glenn Smith and Stan Panikowski. 
attorney with DLA Piper in San Diego and Glenn, a professor at California Western. Thanks again for joining us on Law Review. Thanks also to our producers, Sarah Kege, along with Katrina Julian, Megan Wright, and Jinhee Park. We invite you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or by visiting lawreview.podbean.com. We enjoy hearing from you, and to send a message, you can also do that on lawreview.podbean.com. Until next time, this is Steve Smith, and the Law Review stands adjourned.